0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Jacqueline Ganon. On today's episode, I'm talking to Leila Younis, a staff writer for Environmental Investigations at Grist, which is a nonprofit news source focused on climate reporting. Today we're talking about environmental storytelling, why that's important, and the critical thinking skills you need to get into data journalism. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash cox institute. Now, here's the lead. Hi, Layla. thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So my first question is, why did you gravitate towards environmental journalism and that kind of storytelling?
1: It was a bit serendipitous, honestly. When I got into journalism, I originally, like if you'd asked me what I wanted to do when I started, I would have told you I wanted to cover America's dirty wars um, in the middle east and and um, police brutality. But when I arrived at my first journalism job, the first story that I was um assigned was actually about a little town only thirty minutes from where I grew up in Central Louisiana, where the military was sending a bunch of hazardous waste to be burned in the open air. And after that story, I ended up doing another story about Louisiana. And those were just assignments at the time. And um, I think once I started getting into it, I guess I kind of just realized that, environmental journalism is about, I don't know, I think I had kind of some of the wrong ideas about it. Some of the stereotypical, you know, polar bears and so forth when I was at the start of my career. And then I think once I got into it, I realized that it's actually about so much, right? You know, these communities are up against so much and it's actually about, you know, systemic racism and it's actually about institutional inequality and it's actually about health and um, housing and so many different issues, right? Intersect. With environmental journalism and, you know, the more you learn about something, the more compelling you often find it. And so I think that's what happened and kind of found myself here.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that I've also seen, like in reading environmental coverage. I'm like, this is really like it intersects with so many things. And it's also like environment and climate change are both such big stories now. That's
1: all encompassing. hmm.
0: So yeah, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but during your time at ProPublica, you did work on multiple projects, um, including one that mapped industrial pollution in Louisiana. And that one I thought was really interesting because it led to the suspension of a corporation's permit. So can you walk me through that project and like how you found it, what the reporting and data viz was like, and then what it was like to see those concrete like impacts?
1: So that project came about, it was also an assignment. Um, we were working with the Times Picky and the advocate in New Orleans on a series. Um, we'd kind of been hearing about this boom of, in petrochemical development in this region of Southern Louisiana known as Cancer Alley for its, you know, concentration of industrial facilities. And so We kind of first wanted to just prove whether or not this boom was even happening. And we were able to do that with public records, just kind of pulling permit proposals um, and tracking them over time. But another thing that we were hearing a lot from industry executives and also the state government was that, you know, The air quality in these areas is okay and the concerns of residents that, you know, these plants are coming into already overburdened areas are unwarranted and so what we wanted to do was we wanted to actually kind of prove that these plants were actually coming into some of the most highly polluted areas of the country and So my colleague Al Shaw and I, we were looking around for data and we found this data set called RECI, the Risk Screening Environmental Indicators Model. It's a total mouthful, Um, but it's an EPA model and it's extremely powerful. And the reason for that is, so usually the EPA, when it maps pollution it does it at the level of a census tract they're basically as big as um the amount of people that live there and so in a rural area you have really big census tracts and across that census tract the emissions can vary widely and so you need a smaller scale to actually drill down and see the pollution and prove that you know this plant is going into a very polluted area and also predominantly black area so this this data set was amazing. It basically uh cut the entire country in these tiny little squares of land that are just about half a kilometer wide. It's a scale that we'd never seen pollution map before. And so we we basically mapped the pollution in Cancer Alley and we were able to prove that that point, right? That we, you know, were after, which was that the plants are coming into the worst areas. But we also kind of had this idea, all right, there's this really big plant coming into St. James Parish, it's called Formosa. You know, we didn't have data for that plant because it hadn't been built yet, but they had a permit and they had sort of proposed these emissions. And so we thought, okay, well, what if we, you know, hired somebody who could actually model those emissions and we could map those as well. And so we did, we worked with a modeler called Michael Petroni, and we found that, you know, concentrations in the nearby town were going to increase like fourfold, right, Um, and it's already sort of in the 99.9 percentile of the nation so that's kind of how that project came about and the visualization I mean I really have to give my former colleague Al credit you know he was such an amazing cartographer and and so he really took the reins on on the mapping you know I was I was definitely doing more of the analysis. That's just so cool that to see like, you know, everybody
0: talks about journalism is like the fourth estate and all these like lofty ideals. But I think a lot of the times it feels like you're kind of shouting into the void. So I think that's really cool that there was that like concrete, you know, effect from it. So I know you said you didn't do as much on the data side for that, but you also do data journalism and analysis. So what initially drew you to that like area of journalism?
1: So I guess I got into data journalism kind of in my last year of high school I went to this lecture it's a little cheesy to say that you know one lecture wow but it was a a lecture by this um he's actually a data artist and his name is Trevor Paglin um and he does all this he does this really interesting work where he'll like take a you know basically a telescope and point into the middle of the desert and be the first person to photograph like a you know, an NSA site, right? A place where the NSA has like huge warehouses where they have supercomputers and that's what they use to like spy on people. (laughs) Um, Or he has also been the first to photograph, you know, black sites in Iraq and Afghanistan um, where people are basically disappeared and and not given a fair trial. Um, And he does all that with data, right? He um, collects accurate information and he's able to kind of identify these locations. And one of the things that he said during that talk, I remember was just, he spoke a lot about, you know, visualizing things that are unseen, right? And that so much of the state is, is is invisible to the public, right? And that, you know, data art, and I guess in my case, data journalism, is a way of actually, you know, making so much that is invisible visible. And aggregate information is a way of visualizing trends and things, right, that that otherwise are hard to see. And so I was really compelled by this idea of, like, making something visible, through data that is just generally not. And I mean, I think the, the pollution story is a great example of that, where, you know, unfortunately, right, or fortunately, um, a lot of these chemicals are actually odorless and colorless. So you can't see them, actually, some of the most deadly ones, they're completely invisible, right? So you have these communities who are, you know, dealing with so much, and it's so hard to see it. And I think that in our case, right, data was a way to do that. And, and so I think after that talk, um, I knew I wanted to, study something technical because I was interested in in computer programming. And so, but I was also always very interested in journalism. And I guess I started doing some research and, and data journalism was a little younger then. And uh, I saw a lot of potential, like investigative potential in, in what kind of learning, you know, to tap the power of aggregate information could do.
0: Yeah. And then on the technical side, what are some of the skills that you think made you successful in doing data journalism?
1: I mean... I could I could like list right the the sort of technical skills that are helpful to have you know learn your python and learn your data analysis and learn your um you know kind of kind of get the nuts and bolts of the technicalities you know qgis is my favorite software but i think i think that's all that's all well and good um but that's not what makes a data journalist i think that you know that's what makes you know a data person but i think the journalist part comes from kind of a really a an eye for problem solving and interviewing that data, and you know, validating it and interrogating it the way that you would any human source, right? Um, trying to understand who put this data together, where did it come from, what are its limitations? It always, you know, has a limitation. So, um, what are those, and and how can we be honest about that with our readers? So, I think that those questions uh, and learning to ask them and and learning to to answer them, right, is like I think that's probably the most valuable skill that you could learn. Yeah,
0: that makes sense that like critical thinking skills that's so important intersects with the data part. So one thing I found interesting while I was researching you was in 2021, you're an Open City Fellow, uh, which is a project from the Asian American Writers Workshop. So what was that experience like and what kind of stories were you able to tell over that time as a fellow?
1: Totally different, obviously, than my day job. <laughs> Not investigative journalism, not data journalism. Yeah, that was a really great experience. The Asian American Writers Workshop, you know, they're really committed to sort of supporting and developing young writers um, of a diverse backgrounds. And, you know, what it really was, was an opportunity to write about not only my city, where I live in New York, but also Arab America. Um, that's, you know, my community. And I never really had an opportunity to do that before. And so getting to just kind of interview um people from my community and, and interview people in Arabic too was, I think, a really fun experience for me. I'd never had before. Um, the types of stories I got to tell, I mean, I was able to do sort of an oral history of, of, of people working on the ground in 9-11 when, you know, brown people in the city were basically disappearing off the streets and kind of being put in detention and no one was alerting their families. And I think that was sort of a a time of real sort of collective um, of trauma for the, the community here and really like the community across the country. So it was the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. And there was also a really important case at the time of these former detainees who were basically suing the prison guards who, who tortured them while they were in detention in New York and New Jersey. And only days before the article published, there was a verdict where they actually got nothing and, and the guards were completely let free. And so it felt at the time, you know, I was really glad to be able to kind of Tell that story, you know, in a moment. In a moment like that, I like that you
0: had that chance to do like the different, like you said, something different style of writing, and with such an important story. That's really cool. So now you're at Grist, which is a nonprofit news site that tells stories at the intersection of climate and justice, is the tagline. So, what made you want to like make that change to work at Grist, and how has it been so far?
1: Yeah, Grist is great. Um, so is ProPublica. I, I have no qualms. Um, I. And pretty early in my career, uh, I've been in the industry for about four years, and you know, ProPublica is a place with really big blockbuster stories. You know, you publish uh, once or twice a year, and I think you know, early on, I I, I had the sense like I kind of want to get more reps. and And at Gris, they do both short, medium, and long term stories, and so. It's definitely a place where you can kind of continue to pull string on a story over time and publish like smaller term and shorter term investigations as you go. and And so, I mean, I think that the the switch really came from that, just sort of being early in my career and and wanting to have a, a different sort of experience. But yeah, it's it's um it's been good so far,
0: <laughs> yeah. I've liked reading your work there. So, yeah. And can you talk about the importance of having journalists of color telling stories and probably specifically since your beat is environmental, specifically those environmental stories?
1: This is an interesting question. The communities that I cover are not my community, right? I, I usually cover predominantly Black communities, in some cases, probably Latinx communities or indigenous communities in the United States who are up against, right, the chemical industry. And so, I, you know, in those cases, right, like, I think people from those communities would have an eye for stories and an ability to build trust with those communities that I don't have, right? And so we need more journalists like them, right, on this beat, certainly. I will say, though, that, you know, watching my community covered in the news um, over the course of my life has, you know, given me a certain eye of my own towards sort of the way that I would like to see my community covered. And so I definitely carry that with me when I do these stories. And I think that the best example that I could give of that is I I think that oftentimes, you know, reporters will run to a a bombing, right? And cover that, um, but they don't, won't always hang around for the aftermath. Not that I've ever lived through a bombing, of course. Uh, However, you know, I come from countries where that is a thing and has been over the past decade. And so I I think that, you know, the best stories that I've seen um, are often the ones that journalists sort of actually hang around and spend time to try and understand what happens after that. And I think the same thing goes for environment reporting, where, you know, there's an explosion at a facility and everybody covers it and then, you know, usually walk away. But I think the most compelling stories are when you stay on that and you ask, well, okay, there was this consent decree, but sort of what came of it and, you know, what, What, you know, what is the, what is the quality of this community's life like now? Is it, is it better than it was then? So I think these are some of the questions that I think I've sort of developed an eye towards in that regard.
0: Well, I completely agree about the people who like are in these communities just have, you just have such an eye for things that other people might not have. So that's definitely really important. So finally, what advice do you have for aspiring journalists?
1: I would say read everything. just read so much and read with a critical eye um you know read books by journalists uh, long form you know sometimes I'm lazy and I just like will read a lot of the uh newsletters that kind of publish like the best long form of the month or something and those are really helpful so yeah I mean I think that reading and 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 doing it critically is is the absolute best advice I could possibly give and the other thing that I would say is like you know always try to have an eye for the near and the far view you know i think sometimes when you're really in a story and you're covering one chemical plant or one you know instance of corporate greed it can get kind of myopic and you're just like so in that story that sometimes it can be hard to see the larger forces at play you know which are like the you know greater economic forces or the way that our government is structured and things of that nature and i think that the best stories the ones that I want to tell myself often kind of have an eye for both, right the very close view in the local and that specific instance, and also the the larger systemic forces at play and, um, and are able to kind of balance those two perspectives. So.
0: Yeah, that is great advice. That's something I will try to follow. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining. I really enjoyed our chat. Me as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Layla for joining me on this episode and thank you for tuning into the lead. I'm your host, Jacqueline Gannud. Our executive producer is Charlotte Norsworthy, and this show is supported by the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.